You may be seated. Thank you, Eric. Joyfully enlisting. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Joyfully enlisting. By thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Romans 16 and verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. Mark and avoid. You just sang a song that everyone in here know what they were singing about. Who said the words, who was on the Lord's side? Moses. Some of his cousins came and gathered themselves to him. How many were there? 3,000. What weapon did he suggest they have with them? A sword. And who were they supposed to go kill? Their relatives and friends. You say, I don't believe that's in the Bible. Well, I'm not going to turn you to it right now, but it's Exodus chapter 32, and it is absolutely in the Bible. And for them to consecrate themselves to the Lord as true priests of His, they were to go through the camp from one side to the other and find their brother, their companions, their friends, and slay anyone that had been involved in the golden calf worship of Aaron. Who was on the Lord's side? It's serious business to mark and avoid. See, all we do is mark and avoid. They marked and cut their heads off in the church of God. Those were not Philistines or Egyptians. Those were their friends, their relatives, their brothers, and their neighbors. It is serious business. We are in war for the truth. The lines are being drawn. And we are looking stranger and stranger to the world every year because they are changing more and more and getting farther and farther away from the truth. So we look worse and worse to them. But we look very typical for Baptist churches of 200 years ago. Which category of Puritans were the closest to Baptists? Those called the Congregationalists. Because they believed in a congregational form of government. They did not believe in a Presbyterian form of government. Congregationalists were close to, closer to Baptists than were Presbyterians. Right. Or farther away, anyone that came out of the Church of England and wanted to hold to any of Their ideas. But remember about Congregationalists. They were the state church in the church in the city, in the state of Maine. And in Kittery, Maine, a Baptist preacher named William Screven was put in prison and fined in the late 1600s because he preached against infant baptism because it was the state church. He was imprisoned and he was fined. So he brought his 28 member congregation to Charlestown, South Carolina, And that today is the First Baptist Church of Charleston. Lines were drawn. They hate us. We hate them. They hate our doctrine. We hate their doctrine. The wicked and the righteous have been at war since Cain and Abel. And they're always going to be at war until the Lord Jesus Christ puts all enemies under His feet. Do you remember 
We had a Reformed Baptist family visit us about a year ago. And because in my sermon, I named a name and didn't speak reverently about that heretic like I should have, so those Reformed Baptists went back to their Presbyterian church. Do you remember the name that I named and didn't show it the reverence that it was due? Martin Luther. He was a heretic. He was a Baptist hater. He believed in baptismal regeneration. He taught the doctrine of consubstantiation. He was only a slightly modified Roman Catholic. Yes, he got married. Thankfully for him, he altered that doctrine of the church so that he could have a wife for the rest of his life. But he took transubstantiation and turned it into consubstantiation. The Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation is that the wafer becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ without any remains of the cracker being present. Even though it looks the same, smells the same, and is analyzed chemically the same, that's their doctrine. Martin Luther knew that he was putting a cracker in his mouth and it was going down his gullet, so he came up with consubstantiation. We've got both there. Cracker and body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. We name names. We're going to continue to name names, and we'll probably name names a little bit more to show the Lord that we're serious about Romans 16, 17, because it says, mark them. Well, how do we mark them? We name their names. We get them spotted and marked. If they're in the church, they're going to be marked by name by a public rebuke or a public exclusion, and they're going to be put out. If they're outside the church and they're trying to make inroads, even by multimedia or mass media, we will name them. Because we're supposed to name them. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. Certain men and women in or out of the churches in Rome were to be identified well and avoided by that church. Observe and remember and look at the verse. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. It doesn't say mark those or mark it or mark its. It's mark them. It's persons. Mark them which cause Divisions and offenses. It doesn't say mark the divisions and the offenses. It says mark them that cause them. So it's personal. And they'll turn that against us. They'll try to make us to be wrong for naming names. Just that expression, we don't name names anymore. That's just not right. That's just not acceptable. Well, it sure was to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, Luke, and others. They name names. It's not enough just to condemn error and honor truth. It requires the persons involved as well. Any effort to split a church or to get a following would be called a division. Any activity contrary to established doctrine or practice would be called an offense. So anybody that is trying to get a party in the church or to split the church or to get anyone in the church to follow them in doing anything contrary to doctrine would be a division. Anyone that lives away contrary to the gospel or talks contrary to the gospel, even if they were not trying to get a following for themselves, would be guilty of creating an offense. And so whether it's causing divisions or offenses or both, we are to mark them and avoid them. Pastors are to be vigilant to protect the flock, but members also, because this was written, this is not a pastoral epistle. This is written to the saints in Rome. 
And so it matches up with verses like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, which tells church members that they ought to warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. But they are to warn the unruly, and that's a general epistle to the church at Thessalonica, so that is part of your duty. For you to come to the pastor and tell the pastor that someone is speaking against what's preached from this pulpit, against the ancient landmarks as we hold them, that is not tail-bearing, backbiting, whispering, or slandering. It is doing your gospel duty. Right. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just like you fathers would like to know what your children... Did somebody say that already in this pulpit today? <coughs> you fathers would like to know what your children are doing when you're not around. So ministers want to know what's going on in the congregation. And so we're all to be vigilant. We're all to be warning the unruly. We're all to be marking and avoiding. And one of the ways you mark is to come to the pastor and say, this is what I heard from so-and-so. Here's a document that they're distributing. We've had such a document distributed in this church about three years ago or sometime. A ridiculous collection of vain thoughts during the unemployment period of a man's life, and it was circulated contrary to what we believe in this church and what was taught. And I appreciate hearing about it. And as soon as I heard about it, we were able to deal with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. Look at what is said in the Apostles' Epistle to the church at Corinth. For it hath been declared unto me of you. I've learned something about you, church At Corinth, I've learned something about you Corinthians. It hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. I've been informed that the church is fighting, and he goes ahead and tells the family that sent him the email that there was fighting going on at Corinth. When you you call the police because you see a crime... Is that backbiting? I saw my neighbor kill my other neighbor. Is that backbiting? Is that whispering? Is it tail-bearing? No, no, and no. So, we all have to work together to keep our church. And it's going to get harder because we're going to look more and more different from the world and the world's religions and worldly brand of Christianity. We just are more and more different. We're just holding to the old paths. But the old paths are just getting rarer and rarer, and the new paths are getting more and more extreme, so we look more and more different. There's going to be attacks. Are you ready? Thank you for selecting that song. Who is on the Lord's side? Well, you know it requires a sword. We're going to mark, and we're going to avoid. We're going to exclude, and we're going to shun. And we are going to identify names and we are going to name names of denominations of their principal teachers that impact our church. We don't care about the rest. You know, we're not going to spend much time on Mormonism. If you're tempted by Mormonism, you have far more serious problems than we can deal with from a pulpit. But there are other compromises of Christianity which I will be dealing with more closely that we want to mark and avoid. It's a shame in an effeminate age that many Christians are repulsed by naming names. I get in trouble for it in every proverb commentary 
when you see names like Jimmy Dobson used. I'm going to have to hear about it from somebody who wants to know why I include, included James Dobson with Benny Hinn and Billy Graham. Well, listen, Billy Graham and Benny Hinn ought to be writing me wondering why I would include them with Jimmy Dobson. At least they have some religion in their lives. Jimmy doesn't. Jimmy's a humanistic psychologist. That's his training and that's his teaching. You say, that's just rough on James Dobson. Go read his book and see if they line up with Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Just read his books. Read read a new book, read an old book. Read his oldest book to see if you can find any discipline in the book Dare to Discipline. There isn't any discipline in Dare to Discipline. In Dare to Discipline, what are they daring? To do something different than Benjamin Spock? Well, they're not even coming near the Bible in Dare to Discipline. In In the Bible, there's a method for disciplining children. It involves a particular tool. It's a three-letter word. See, Jimmy doesn't believe in that. Jimmy believes the most important thing your children need is self-love and self-esteem. The most important thing your marriage needs is self-love and self-esteem. Until you learn to love yourself, you can't learn to love your spouse. That has such a nice ring to it, it reminds me of good words and fair speeches. Right. But it doesn't have a thing to do with truth. For you to be a good spouse, you have to learn to condescend to your spouse and get off your high horse and love them more than you love you. That's what the Bible teaches. When Jesus taught that the second commandment is to love others as you love yourself, they say He was teaching that we need to learn to love ourselves so that we can learn how to love others. Jesus wasn't teaching that. Jesus knows we already love ourselves too much, and it sets a high standard for how we should learn to love others. And on and on we go, naming names. Oh, thank you, Lord. Yes, we can find them out today and and we can name some names. It's a shame that some Christians, many Christians, most today are repulsed by naming names. But Paul named Alexander. Paul named Demas. Did you know that the whole world learned about Demas? Loved this present evil world more than the Apostle Paul? The whole world. The whole Christian world. Every church knew that Demas was AWOL. That Demas was a loser. That Demas loved the world. That Demas forsook his ministry. Hymenaeus. Philetus. Paul named names. And sometimes described their heresy. As in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus, they were preterists. Which we've had raise its ugly head in our church. Which didn't take us long to deal with. John named Diotrephes. In the third epistle of John. Paul named Peter. And published it. Whoa. Let me get a little air into there. Peter. Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 18. Why did he put it in writing? Why didn't Paul just rebuke Peter at Antioch and leave it at that? Why did he put it in the epistle to the Galatians across the Mediterranean Sea from the city of Antioch, Syria, his home church when Peter came? Why did he put it in writing? Because he named names. He marked them. Peter repented. Or we wouldn't have his epistles in our New Testament. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't have Paul meeting up with him later and having the right hand of fellowship with him. 
He named the name of Peter and he identified the error, the hypocrisy of Peter about the issue between Jews and Gentiles and what they ate. And he published it. Luke published the difference between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark, the AWOL preacher. Acts chapter 15. Why did Luke have to put it in writing? Couldn't Paul and Barnabas just have their dispute over John Mark? Why did it have to become public? Because John Mark needed to be exposed and so did Barnabas for the nepotism that he showed toward his nephew, John Mark, even though he was an AWOL loser. You know, the Bible also names names that John Mark, later in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, was a very useful minister. So I want to say the whole thing of what the Bible says about John Mark. If you do not name names, how will anyone know the source of the danger and rightly avoid it? Since doctrine's no longer important, men think name-calling is merely personal. And that's what they accuse us of. Well, you're just trying to be personal. Well, I don't know what you mean by that. You know, I've never met Jimmy Dobson. I don't want to meet him. I don't want to read another sentence that he's written. I don't want to hear one more campfire story that he tells for modern-day Christians that really are brownies at heart. Does everybody know what a brownie is? It's not a chocolate dessert. A brownie are little girls that wear brown uniforms and sit around campfires and tell little stories. That's that's as heavy-handed as Jimmy Dobson ever gets. If you've li- if you've listened to his little effeminate tales that he tells on the radio, and I know I've got women right now that are that are getting squirmy and and the hairs are raising on the and I wish you didn't have hair in the back of your neck. I mean, growing there. But you're getting irritated with me because you like those little stories. That is not preaching the Word of God. That has created a generation of child rebellion in our country because of Benjamin Spock and Jimmy Dobson, who should be twins. They both teach such a permissive view of child training. Let's go to the Bible. Let's settle it with the Bible. Do you know what? In the New Testament... When it talks about a father disciplining his children, what is the name of the tool? It's not rod, and it's not three letters long. Scourge. Scourge. Does anybody want to get offended with that? That the tool of child training in the New Testament is the scourge. Have you seen one? A 24-inch wooden handle for you to get a good grip on with nine leather thongs coming out of the end of it. Maybe with bits of metal tied into the leather thongs. In British circles, it is called the cat of nine tails. Very effective. What father uses it on what children? God the Father uses it on us. Now see, I'm I'm giving you an illustration. Everywhere we turn in our society, there is departure from the Word of God. I don't care what degrees they have, like Jimmy Dobson in humanistic psychology. That's proof that he doesn't know what he's talking about, that he could even sit through that course of study. You say you're being disrespectful by calling him Jimmy. That's friendly. James sounds too formal. Of course I'm not trying to be friendly with them. 
I want to be disrespectful to him. He needs to be named. His religion needs to be mocked. And his effect on America's families needs to be mocked. Who has read in the last couple of weeks what happened to Bill Gothard? Anybody want to raise their hand? Well, thank you, Orville. And I'm, I'm thankful that you know I am. Unbelievable. Decades have come home to roost on that man's head. He is long gone. Bye-bye. Thrown out by his own board for decades. We want to name names. And mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. See, an effeminate generation loved Bill Gothard because he told stories about squirrels and somehow tried to take a squirrel story and teach you how to be a parent. I didn't know that squirrels were good parents. I thought that Solomon did a decent job writing about how to be a good parent. Why would I want to hear a story about squirrels gathering nuts for their little squirrels and how that's supposed to make me a better father? You should see his institute in character development from squirrels and from owls and from garbage like that instead of pounding verses like, He that loveth pureness of heart for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. Oh, what mileage we could get out of a verse like that if we were to preach the Bible. But see, if you were to pick up a Bible and start preaching the Bible, his conglomerate mongrel crowd of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Baptists, Methodists, and Roman Catholics would no longer be able to abide the message. But they all love stories about squirrels. You say you're on a roll. Keep going. We'll have time to do that in the future. But thank you for your encouragement. I don't need a whole lot of it. Because the verse to me has me motivated. And doing just a little bit of listening and reading and having to deal with some of these ministers and what they're going through, trying to undo the shackles of Pentecostalism and charismatic chaos and confusion, it's very provoking. It's very offensive. And we need to name names because the Bible tells us to here in the text that the Lord has brought us to for today. And whatever the text says, I preach it to you. When the text said, I commend unto you Phoebe, What did I do with it? I preached a different kind of a message about commending people. And I meant every word of that because every word of that is just as true in verse 1 of Romans 16 as what we find now in verse 17. It is a fact of the gospel of Christ due to Satan's enmity against him and by God's continual winnowing effort. God is continually winnowing His wheat in order to get rid of the chaff. So look at 1 Corinthians 11 with me. 1 Corinthians 11. And let's be reminded of something, that there are always going to be heretics and heresies that we have to deal with. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 19. For there must be also heresies among you. There must be also heresies among you. Why, Lord? There must be heresies among us. Why? That they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Every time a heresy comes up, you all have the opportunity to get behind that heretic, click your heels, 
and salute and say, Heil, and follow them out. And those that don't prove that they love the truth of Pauline doctrine more than the heretics that God's raised in our midst. In the last four years, heresies, five, and we're still here. And you have no idea how much I am thankful for God's winnowing effect for getting them out of our church. They were destructive poison in our church. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. From Christian liberty to Bible prophecy to Old Testament law keeping. Unbelievable. You know, and a, and a shepherd, whenever it happens, he gets scared. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you every time. What sheep are going to be rattled? Because this brother put on such a good show with his good words and fair speeches, even though his right hand was a right hand of falsehood, and though his mouth spoke vanity, they were a nice family. I wonder if there's really something more. Maybe I should follow them out. It happens. And pastors get scared. And they wonder, are the sheep going to bolt? Or are the sheep grounded in the Word of God? And that's why we preach the Word of God over and over again. That's why when a heresy comes up, there's this little tiny document on our website called Sabbatarian or Christian. It's just tiny. It's every conceivable argument against Sabbatarianism that can be pulled from a Bible with a very fallible author. When preterism raises its ugly head in here, we have the most complete document on the website against preterism. By your mercy towards your pastor to give him two weeks times 100 hours per week to put that document together so that you don't get moved away from the hope of the gospel. There's no hero in your pulpit. There's just a slave to the Word of God. He's a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love for heresy to raise its ugly head so that we can take the Word of God in a two-handed Japanese sword and cut the head off. And I hope every time we do it, you're able to see everything clearly because it's taught and presented clearly that you just roll your eyes and say, what in the world were they thinking? And heresy's always that way as long as you're seeing clearly through the spectacles of the Word of God. Look at this verse. I'm wondering, which of you is going to be next? Which of you is going to do a little surfing and come up with a word of wisdom for us. You know, that's when Benny Hinn stands there. He closes his eyes, touches his head, like the Lord speaking to him directly. And he says, I can see kidney stones being healed right now. I can, kidney stones being healed right now. Oh, yes, Benny. Benny, all you can see when you do that is that great big beautiful dollar sign because the Kentucky Fried Chicken Buckets are getting full and they're hauling them to the back on a forklift. That's a word of wisdom. There was a word of wisdom in the New Testament church. What do we do in this situation to please God? And a man with a gift of prophecy would stand up and he would have a word of wisdom and he'd utter about four sentences and explain what they ought to do to please God because they didn't have a New Testament. 
And as soon as the New Testament came, all the words of wisdom went away because we have the perfect law of liberty right now in the, in the New Testament scriptures. Amen. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, if I tarry long and I don't get to see you soon, I've written so that you will know how to behave yourself in the house of God. Did it say that this morning in 1 Timothy 3.15? We've had them and we're going to have more. I'm just wondering who's it going to be? It can only happen. It can only happen if you're playing with sin. If you're allowing bitterness in your life, it corrupts your mind to where you will listen and think about things that you would otherwise not if your heart was pure. Because remember, I've preached about this recently. Bitterness gives place to the devil and it gives the devil leverage. Lest he get an advantage of us. So, if you're walking with the Lord and you're at peace with everyone and your heart is pure and you have pure, forgiving, loving thoughts toward everyone, there's no root of bitterness to spring up and trouble us and thereby many be defiled. Then you listen to what is preached and you trust it and you believe it. And if you have a question about it and it is an intelligent question, I will answer your question. But you don't have some little difference that you hold on to and say, well, I just don't believe that. On what basis? Because you're a weekend warrior and you spent 12 minutes surfing the internet? Mark it on your calendar about your pastor's discretion. Because notice my silence. Because I'd like to say a few things toward weekend warriors who spot something and think they have a better idea. Mark it. Because I'll tell you my tongue's on fire. I wonder who it's going to be that's got a better idea because you went and spent 12 minutes on the Internet. I hate the Internet because all the false teachers and false doctrines that I hate so much as Jesus Christ's ambassador get to come right into your house and you think they might have an element of truth because the guy's got a nice smile and better teeth than I have. That's for a woman. Why did she fall for the devil and... 15 seconds. Because he had some great looking teeth. But he wasn't slithering on the ground at that point. He was the was most subtle beast of the field. The Bible tells us that. Look at Matthew chapter 18. We have to be serious about this. We are in a war. Is it time to talk about fun and games? We're in the middle of a war. This whole Bible's a war. And the war is about to come to a conclusion, and I want to be on the right side. I want to be on a white horse behind him who is on a white horse, whose name is called the Word of God. Matthew 18, verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses! What are we dealing with in Romans 16, 17? Them that cause divisions and offenses? Contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, woe unto the world because of offenses, Jesus says with an exclamation point, for it must needs be, it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh, exclamation point. You know, there's a hidden prophecy of Judas Iscariot. Someone had to betray the Lord Jesus Christ because the prophecy said he would, But woe unto that man that the Lord uses to fulfill his own prophecy. There are going to be errors, and there are going to be false teachers, and there are going to be heresies and heretics. But woe to the men that are used by God for those heresies and heretics. Let us be on the other side. 
Let us rejoice as parents. We have a church skewed so much to the youth side. Let us protect all these children. Your education choices for your children. What you do in your home. Your technological devices. The friends they have. Be careful. Save your children. It would be better to lose your child because you were too strict in trying to follow God's Word than playing around with the world too much and lose them to the world. You've got to make a choice. Are you going to be like Abraham and Joshua or someone else? All you young parents, we older parents grieve for you. Every time you announce another conception, you don't know what you're doing. We know what you're doing. You're creating a tremendous workload for yourself over the next 20 years. We live in a different society than was existent just a generation or two ago. It's different. Sin is treated differently. Abominable perversions that when I was a boy, we all understood what would happen if somebody wanted to be gay in our high school. Just in a lifetime, a short lifetime. Things are changing so much. It's hard to get them from infancy to adulthood still fearing God. Lord, help us. Have mercy upon us. By Thy Holy Spirit, hedge us about and hedge our children in lest they depart from the God of their father and mother and lest they depart from Thy Word that Thou hast given to us. Give us wisdom and discretion and help us to apply Thy Word as perfectly as we can in the training and the protection and the quarantining of our children. Heavenly Father, look at this the Lord Jesus Christ saying that offenses have to come. The Lord hates discord and He'll surely judge those that cause discord in a church, but He wants us to put out anyone that differs from His doctrine. And we don't even want to let it get started. We want to preach. We just want to take every word that we find. Why did I preach on I commend? Is it because I couldn't think of anything else in Romans 16 to preach about? Because I have sensed, I have smelled the smoke of the false idea that commending other people is not glorifying to Jesus Christ. I've caught whiffs of it in our church. And see, it's not a nebulous concept. It's individuals. Everything I preach, there are individuals that I know are the closest to that line, are playing around that sin, are playing around that error. There is a little bit of wisdom to my madness in preaching God's Word. And so I took, I commend, And I laid it out for you as well as I could. And there were benefits from I commend preaching to all of us. But I'm always trying to cut off any error that would disrupt our peace and unity as a church that loves the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if the goal of a church is fuzzy-wuzzy loving compromise for a happy social church, marking is not exactly conducive to that goal. So, that isn't our goal. We heard our goal this morning. It's 1 Timothy 3.15 to be a church that loves the truth. To increase fast, 
A church's doctrinal position must become more inclusive and less exclusive. We like to do the opposite. Preaching must be more and more vague about divisive issues of doctrine, practice, and lifestyle. Listen to them. What do you think Joel is going to criticize today? That's the smiling guy down in Houston Compact Center, the old Compact Center. If you don't, you know Joel? What's he going to criticize today? That you're not all rich. You just haven't read enough of his books because your best life now. I've already told you, haven't I, what John MacArthur said about that? John MacArthur has his own long string of problems, and if you need need me to write a little paper and attach it to the next church update about John MacArthur, I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to show you what he said when he recanted his position of incarnate sonship, which we believe in this church, and went back to eternal sonship. But John MacArthur said, Joel Osteen must be preaching that he and his church are going to hell because it's your best life now. (laughs) That was good. That was creative. And it was naming names, and it was getting pretty tough. I liked it. Oh, yeah, I can punch my air for someone that's in error. I can punch my air for someone that's in error when they speak the truth. But you know, I just do it for a little bit of spiritual entertainment once in a while. Lord, help us be careful in everything we do. Marking is identifying by name and any other designation helpful to save God's saints from them. It's inherently personal because you're marking someone. You're marking a person. You're naming them. It involves individuals and their names, their roles, their efforts, their offices. Yet it's not a personal vendetta. It's not, there's nothing personal between me and James Dobson or John MacArthur or Joel Osteen. We're never going to meet. He doesn't care about us and I don't care about him. He preaches to more than I do for obvious reasons. If we were to alter our doctrine here and change it to the social gospel that he preaches and bring in enough amplification in order to provide 150 decibel music, we would triple our church in four weeks. If we bought a big enough facility, it would be ten times larger in 14 weeks. It's very simple to grow a church the way Joel, New Spring, and the others grow. You should see the millions they invest in their strobe lights, smoke machines, and amplification to drive the bodies of the idiots that go there. You know, here I am, and you are with me, trying to spread the gospel in Africa, and Africa fills New Spring and Elevation Church in Charlotte because they use that music and that driving beat amplified to the point of pain in order to get control of the bodies so that they think they're having a spiritual meeting with Jesus. As some tattooed little slut up on stage sings about Jesus in her skimpy little outfit. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a Google search box away. I've never misled you when it comes to the truth of God's doctrine. Type in Elevation Church and see the punk rocker Stephen Furtick, who's its pastor, who is a Southern Baptist seminary graduate. See him in his tank top. See his meet the pastor as he takes you on a tour of his weight room. See his multi-million dollar house that's causing him a little heat right now in Charlotte. 
You know, if we wanted to grow our church, we wouldn't do any marking or any of the talking that we're doing right now. It's not a personal vendetta at all. The whole issue is a departure from biblical truth. Of course, this effeminate generation is going to accuse us for being personal, vengeful, spiteful, unloving, and so forth. When Paul magnified his office in Romans 11 and in other places, he wasn't pumping himself at all. He was magnifying the office that Jesus Christ created and put him in. When we magnify the truth of God's Word, it's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're more diligent. It's not because we work harder. It's not because of anything like that. It's entirely the grace of God, and God gets all the glory. But He's going to get the glory. And we are not going to apologize, compromise, back off, or try to sound humble in some worldly definition of the word humility. We are going to esteem all His precepts concerning all things to be right, and we're going to hate every false way, because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And the man who told us to do that was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and was called by the Holy Spirit the sweet psalmist of Israel, David. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Praise the Lord for verses like that in the Bible. I wasn't taught verses like that when I was growing up, and I had a revulsion against the effeminate Arminian gospel. But when you hear a gospel like that, that includes teeth and testosterone by the Holy Spirit through a man of men, David There's something in a child of God that would say with the 3,000 sons of Levi, here we are. What do you want us to do, Moses? And so we go and do it. And the Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to that. And if any of you think that I just overstated being in the Lord Jesus Christ's army, then why did you sing that last song with us? Who was on the Lord's side? Because it was all militaristic terms about the same thing I'm talking about. I consider it a pleasure and a privilege and a high honor from the God of heaven that he would choose us for these perilous times. God knew exactly what was going to occur between 1957 and 2014. That's, That's my life. He knew exactly what was going to happen in that period of time, and he chose me, and he chose you, or he chose you, and he chose me for this time. That it should be exciting to you. God did not charge... God did not choose us to be encamped there in the valley of Elah when Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, came out. He just didn't choose us for that. Aren't you glad? We might have sat back for a day or two just to check out a guy that's nine feet, nine inches tall, and he's holding a spear that's the size of a weaver's beam. You know, you'd be curling it to lift it. And he comes out and challenges the armies of Israel. He didn't choose us for that. I'm thankful that He didn't choose me for 1556 under the reign of Bloody Mary. Maybe I wouldn't have been as bold as the blind boy that we heard about today. You know, I'm going to trust the Lord to have taken care of all that with each of us. And none of it really matters. Do you know what He chose us for? Today. And do you know what our war is today? The compromise of carnal Christianity that is on every side and is sweeping this world that God's Word does not matter anymore, and that almost anything, and really everything, is acceptable, and we should have toleration, and we should embrace them and love them, and we shouldn't name names, and we shouldn't name sins, 
And let's just all be happy and love Jesus. After all, all that matters is that we love Jesus. But I've taught you today, brother, I've taught you today that there's another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. I've, I've reminded all of you of that. There's another Jesus. When they say all that matters is that we love Jesus, When I hear that, maybe I don't belong in the tribe of Levi. There's a little part of me that says, well, I love love Jesus too. And if you love Jesus, then we do have something in common. I I said there was a little part of me. Don't, Don't anybody get scared or call for my resignation or anything yet. I'm serious. We just want to love Jesus. So what's a man supposed to do? and What's a woman supposed to do? And what are, what are you fathers and mothers supposed to do? We come back to this thing and we turn over there to 2 Corinthians and we find out that there's another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Right. And then we remind ourselves that we're to mark anyone that causes division, divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we have learned and avoid them. Right. That if even an angel from heaven preaches a gospel different than what Paul taught, he is to be accursed that men would no longer endure sound doctrine and they're going to move toward fables and that they're going to use good words and fair speeches. Verse 18 of our Romans 16, is Jesus a good word? Is all that matters is that we love Jesus. Is that a fair speech? It sure is. And down goes the vast majority. But we come back to the Bible and we measure them by their fruits. By their fruits ye shall know them. And the toleration that they have for all kinds of wickedness and evil. They don't practice exclusion. They don't practice church discipline. They never preach on any hard topics that would divide that congregation or separate it by lifestyle or by belief. And so we go back to the Word of God and we get our strength back and we understand that is another Jesus. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. I told you that I wasn't going to preach on music. I am not going to go through the different kinds of music and try to tell you that one's of God and one's of the devil and where it came from and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you have this form of syncopation, that that's of the devil, I don't do that. There's, there's other guys that have done that, and if that helps you, then fine. I'm just going to go to places like Matthew chapter 7 where it says, By their fruits ye shall know them. Right. And so I simply lay out to you who wrote the song, who performed the song, who produced the song, who buys the song, and who holds the concerts for those four to get together. And if you have read the Bible, then you know that you are trying to pick cherries from a bramble bush. And that's how the Lord wants us to judge false prophets, because sometimes we can't see in far enough. We can't know their hearts. We don't care about their hearts. All that matters is the product, the fruit, And so we look at the fruit. Do these people love Pauline doctrine? Are these people holding a strong stand for the holiness and the purity, the sexual purity, the sexual rules, the marital rules that God has in the Bible? Or have they left them? And we can go down just a a short little list. And if you need help with the list, I am always available. The closer heretics or heresy are to the truth, the louder and longer must be the marking of them. An American bank teller 
even if she's got an IQ of 90, if you walk in with a pile of Russian rubles, it's not going to give you a full deposit. Because Russian rubles don't look like American dollars. In the same way, most Christians can easily discern and despise Hindus, Mormons, Muslims, and Catholics. But bank tellers get detailed information and are constantly reminded and are given rules to defect counterfeit U.S. bills that are the best out there. And the only way to spot the best counterfeit bills is to really know the genuine article. And so they are taught what a real U.S. bill looks like and the little telltale features that are in it that keep a counterfeiter from being able to duplicate. In the same way, you and I must be reminded of very subtle differences of heresy and practice. See, we, we would love it if the only difference were Mormons, Hindus, Muslims, and Catholics. But it isn't like that at all. Those aren't really a threat to any of us. The real threat are the good Christian friends that your children make friends with, go to school with, that you work with, that live next door to you, and that you run into. They're the most dangerous ones that we have to deal with. They're the ones with a different Jesus. Of course, the Mormons don't even have anything close enough to call it Jesus. Paul didn't mean the Mormons when he wrote 2 Corinthians 11. He knew the Corinthians weren't going to accept anything like that. Great heresies do not happen at once or by one change, but by many compromises over time. These minor errors, and you know, we could just make a long list of them, are heresy and they promote error. Other Bible versions. The reason we stick to the King James Bible is because it's God's Word. God has put His stamp of approval upon it, and those that read another version are lacking God's words that work effectually in you that believe. And of course, I'm not going to go off on a 10-hour explanation as to why we believe the King James Bible I'm pointing out that if we start, if we have a different Bible, it is not God's word. It's not God's words. And the Bible, and Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. If we're going to believe any of the Bible, we need to believe that as well. And if we believe that as well, then it condemns any other Bible version. Arminian salvation is another Jesus. Arminian salvation is denying the Jesus of the Bible. Just like Paul told the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, you have departed, you've fallen from grace. Musical instruments. See, I wasn't gonna, I'm not gonna preach on music, but I, I gave you a show on a Wednesday night a few months ago, or maybe it's a year or two years ago, about musical instrumentation. I brought together everything that I could bring together in the best way that I could, I know how to present it to show you that musical instruments are condemned by the New Testament. And see, it's hard, it's hard, once you've allowed a piano in the church, this is the way I, I can remember. See, my, my mother always played the piano or the organ. You know, if it was the morning service, it deserved the organ. If it was just the evening service when only half the church shows up, then it gets the piano. And you know, once in a while, she'd stick in Paul or me with a saxophone. Because, you know, obviously, we were her boys. When the first guitar was played in a Baptist church in our area, my mother almost blew up. I mean, just... Because she couldn't believe that a guitar had been brought into a Baptist church. And then, you know, the first guitars were just acoustical guitars. And, you know, it's just a guy sitting up there on a stool 
strumming away about Jesus. Remember, my brother? Exactly. We know the names. We know the years. We know the churches. Our parents were flabbergasted. Then they brought in these kind of guitars that had long strings hanging out of them that you plugged into amplifiers. Oh, that's the Beatles in the church. And then, but where did all, where'd the error come from? The piano! It came from the piano! The minute you allow a piano, there isn't a verse in the Bible to stop you from any musical instrument excess. Because you have compromised the verses that would protect you from the excess if you would have started with the first sin. And that's true of so many different subjects. And that's why we want to be careful. That's why we're careful with Catholic holidays. That's why we're careful about women speaking in church. That's why... That's supposed to be a baptistry. Brother, did you know that? I'm going to tell you a story. That's supposed to be a baptistry. And when we bought this church building, it was a baptistry. Do you want to know how crazy your pastor is? I didn't know what that baptistry was for when I first saw it. It was only 18 inches wide. I looked at that thing. I looked at me. And I thought of another brother that was in the church at that time that was bigger than me. And I said, Dad... We both get down inside that thing. The water's going to be all over the front of this room. And he said, son, don't you know? That's a dry pastor baptistry. You're supposed to stand behind it. And the guy walks down it. The candidate for baptism walks down into it. And you just push their head under. You do it from behind so that you don't have to change your clothes, son. He wasn't promoting it. He was just telling me, that's where they came up with it. It was called a dry baptistry baptism. We sold that to some other dry Baptists. <laughs> if you were to push me real hard in private and you asked me would a, would a dry Baptist baptism be legal in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ for the person... Oh, I said I would only say it in private. Um... The point I'm trying to make is we're never going to use anything like that. Because when I read about John baptizing Jesus, how many of them went down into the water? In Matthew, When they found an oasis in the middle of the desert, in Acts chapter 8, how many of them went down into the water? Does the Bible tell us that both went down into the water? I'm going to just keep on changing my clothes. And the, do you under, Do you know, yeah. all know the point of that story? Mm-hmm. As soon as it's a dry pastor, the next thing is it's a deacon. As soon as a deacon's baptizing, any of you can baptize. Hey, you know the next time you're on a family vacation, have a good devotions in the morning, take them all down to the pool, do them all. Right. Yeah. And really... You know, if, if mommy cried during the devotions, you might as well let her do two of the children. Because once you start down the road of compromising, where do you stop? And so we try to stop at the front end. They both went down to the water, so we don't have a dry pastor baptistry. We are not heroes. 
Do you know what the Bible says? That when we have done everything that is commanded of us, and this is our attitude, and if we don't keep this attitude, God will put blinders upon our eyes. This is our attitude. This is taught in the Bible. Jesus told his apostles, when you have done everything that is commanded of you, you should say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done that which was our duty to do. I am an unprofitable servant, and I have only done that which is my duty. This church is an unprofitable church in your sight, holy God, And we have only done that which was our duty. But continue to show us our duty. And we will continue to do it. And bless our efforts to have profit with others. And we'll be thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.